0: Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Matthew 26, 47 to 54. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Many came to me this morning and asked me, um, are you nervous? And my answer to them was like, listen, I'm, I'm wearing my reading glasses. I don't really see what's going on out there, so I don't care. <laughs> um, and, and many um, came up to me and, and told me that, hey, I pray for you. And um, that's very really heartfelt. It was um, totally grateful. And, and you need it too. Because we may all look back to this day and realize that this is the beginning of the downfall of Oak Hills. (laughs) The day may come that your children or your grandchildren may come to you and say, Grandfather, grandfather, what happened to our church? Oak Hills was such a wonderful place. And you would have to tell them, well, son, I still remember the day when we gave Paul and Mike. (laughs) And the rest is history. I like sermon titles. A sermon title helps me to focus on what I'm going to say, and it helps the people listening understand better of what the message is about. Today's sermon title is The Way of the Cross. In the following time, I will bring you from the present to the past and back to the present again to explain God's plans to use redemptive sufferings instead of power and violence to bring forth the Kingdom of God and what that implies to us in the contemporary. And it begins with something like this. Kristen Dumais, a beautiful name. Kristen Dumais is a Christian historian who teaches at Calvin University. Her recent publication, Jesus and John Wayne, has created some excitement within the Christian circle. In this book, she argues that pop culture has been shaping American evangelicalism in a way that we have chosen a tough guy image for Jesus. Now, if you'd like to read, you, uh, watch the movie rather than read the book, you can actually go on YouTube and search under her name, Kristen Dumay or Jesus and John Wayne, and you'll find a lot of very interesting interview with the author uh, on this book. Now, in this book, she says, the products... Christians consume, shape the faith they inhabit. Today, what it means to be a conservative evangelical is as much about culture as it is about theology. This is readily apparent in the heroes they celebrate. Establishment evangelicals might count Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield among their eminent forbearers, and I am in that camp. But... Evangelical popular culture is teeming with a different ensemble of heroes, men like William Wallace, as brought to life by Mel Gibson, Teddy Roosevelt, the mythic American cowboy, Douglas MacArthur, General Patton, and the ordinary American soldier, and the actor John Wayne, who of course is the prototype of all American iconic heroes. John Wayne was basically Captain America wearing a cowboy's hat. Yeah, that was my line, not hers, which should be in the book. Dumais explains how the history of evangelicalism intertwined with pop culture, that between Billy Sunday and Billy Graham, between Stuart Hamblin and John Wayne, that the John Wayne style of heroic masculinity would come to serve as the symbol for authentic Christian manhood. And there's a long line of iconic male characters that would follow. In the 70s, we have Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood. Till this day, some of us would still play with the line, go ahead, make my day. In the 80s, we have Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll be back. Today, we have Vin Diesel and Fast and Furious. None of these tough guys wanted to fight. I don't want to hurt you, they would say. They all get pushed to the corner, to the point of no return, that they have to resort to violence to maintain order, to bring justice, to save the day. In other words, we believe that there is a war to end all wars. And if that's the case, I would argue that the castings for the character Jesus in all previous Jesus films are wrong. If I am going to reboot the Jesus film, I would cast Dwayne Johnson to play Jesus. You know, he's, I think he's half Samoan. He'll probably password you. And um, when he gets up in the morning, he's not going to be fully roped like the Jesus film. Like, he's going to be wearing like a half vest with a belt showing his chest muscles, probably bouncing up and down a little bit, right? At his six-pack. And, and he's a carpenter, right? He'll be, you know, using a big old saw, like three times the size of a regular saw. He will go like, hoo-ha, hoo-ha. And then, oh, I don't need that. Pick it up and go, oh, crack. And then the women behind him go, oh. <laughs> and then when he goes out to call his disciples, you go, there, hmm, let's see. James and John the fishermen right okay you and you follow me and the brothers they were like deers caught in their head like oh <laughs> what is he called I don't know to shut up you wanted to preconnect. <laughs> see this would account for the biblical accounts why everybody would just drop everything and follow Jesus right you're laughing but don't think this is radical This is the kind of mindset that was displayed in the Capitol Hill assault on January 6th, this year. Of course, we do not condone with that kind of behaviors, but what truly concerned me was the display of so many Christian symbols on Capitol Hill that day. And they even led a prayer meeting after they got inside the Capitol. It was recorded that the prayer started with, Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here. That was the kind of disillusion that troubled me. But I needed to point out that this kind of mindset is not original. In fact, we can trace all the way back to the days of Jesus because that's exactly how his disciples think. That's exactly how the majority of Israel think during that time. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright explains that the Jews at the time of Jesus believed that in some sense, They were still on exile, even though they already lived in Jerusalem. And the reason was because they were still being ruled by the Gentiles, the Romans. And that's why they felt the exile exile experience was not over. And they were looking for a warrior king to come and rescue them. Now, let me explain to you the mindset of the exilic. Uh, does anybody here uh, remember the group uh, from the 70s, Boney M? I, I think they're from Europe or something. And they, they no? And, yeah, no, no, I, I was still listening to nursery rhymes. Yeah, shut up. Um, <laughs> they have a song that goes like this. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yeah, we wept when we remembered Zion. Everybody, no, no. <laughs> the lyrics of that song came straight out of Psalm 137, which says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our hearts For there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in the foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. That was the mindset of the exilic in Babylon. They agonized over their defeat, and they also agonized over how did they get to where they were. You see, in the ancient times when two nations were at war, not only the people were fighting, they also believed their gods were fighting in the spiritual realm. And whichever nation won reflects which god defeated the gods of the enemies. And in their mind, the idea that Yahweh lost to the gods of the Babylonians was completely mind-boggling. It was not something that the Jews could wrap their heads around. Now let me bring you back to the year 586 B.C. and explain to you what I meant by that. 586 B.C was the year when Jerusalem, when the last standing city of Judah, the kingdom of God, was under siege by Babylon and was actually, uh, actually, actually uh, taken over. It fell to the hands of the Babylonians. Now, at that time, uh, there were two remaining superpowers remaining in the scene. There was Egypt and there was Babylon. And there were three political factions inside Jerusalem. There was a pro-Egypt camp. There was a pro-Babylon camp. And then there was the temple faction. And then all the way in the corners, in the corner, was a prophet Jeremiah, who had his very own idea of what's really happening. Now, But that's a story for another day. Now, the pro-Egypt camp says... We should pledge our allegiance with the Pharaoh. Because we shouldn't be afraid of the Babylonians. Because Pharaoh, the Egyptians, are the really the stronger nation. If the Babylonians are going to attack us, the Egyptian army is going to uh, defend us. The pro-Babylon people are saying exactly the opposite. They no, 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 no. The Babylonians are the true badass. If we piss them off, we'll be in trouble. Now, the temple faction people were saying something completely different. We said, no, no, you guys are wrong. You guys are wrong. Who is really defending us? Yahweh, our God. Now, where is Yahweh? Yahweh is in the temple. Where is the temple? The temple is in Jerusalem. So, our God will have to defend Jerusalem. All the way there at the corner, and Prophet Jeremiah said, no, no. You guys got it wrong. And if you want to know what really happened, you would have to read the book. The butler didn't do it. Now, the pro-Egypt camp and the pro-Babylon camp, in a way, they actually believe in what the temple faction was saying. The fact that Yahweh is going to defend them is not really in debate. The difference is, how is Yahweh going to do it? How is God going to protect them? So, one can't believe that God is going to protect them through the Egyptian army. The other can't believe that God is going to protect them through the Babylonian um, army. You see, when push comes to shove, they would rather bet their security, their lives, on a more tangible uh, source, like a political ally like somebody in power, like somebody who has an army with powerful weapons. But they all believe that God will defend them. And that's why when Jerusalem fell to the hands of the Babylonians, not only the city wall fell, their worldview had also collapsed. That's why we have limitations after limitations in the Bible. When the Jews were taken captive to be exiled, that's when the prophets like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, some minor prophets, they wrote book after books after books, explaining to the exilic what actually happened. A nameless prophet wrote the book of Kings. Yes, the book of Kings uh, used to be just one book. It was not until the Septuagint came along, that it was divided into 1 Kings and Second Kings. Now, the book might be long, but the message is simple. Basically, the book of, book of Kings says, no, 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 no. Yahweh did not lose to the gods of the Babylonians. You guys messed up. And let me explain to you what happened by recounting history. Remember David? Yes, he sinned. And then Solomon, his son, yeah, he sinned too. And his son Rehoboam, yeah, he sinned. And his son sinned. And the son of his son sinned. And the son of his son of his son sinned. That's why the book was so long. So this is why, this is why you are where you are. Now, in the middle of this book, Book of Kings, there's a very strange prayer. In fact, if you uh, take a step back, you would think, hey, this almost comes straight out of the script of uh, Saturday Night Life. Um, This prayer is part of the temple dedication prayer prayed by Solomon. So, the occasion is this. Uh, Solomon finished building the temple. It was magnificent. It was beautiful. It was layered with gold and there was uh, gems and jewels and like just beautiful. So, they had a, a temple dedication, right? So, uh, 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 sacrifice were offered, there was um, a worship, there was singing, was dancing, were was feasting, it was just so festive. In the middle of this, Solomon stretched out his hand to heaven and started praying. And he said, Lord, God, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled. And this is the day. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that grand? Isn't that kingly? I mean, it was wonderful. Like like the community prayer we heard earlier, right? It was beautiful. It was something that you heard, and you're on board right away. You would be like, yeah, amen. Yeah, preach, brother, preach. You would be saying that. But then... He said this. He said, When they meaning the people standing in front of him, when they you could see Solomon was strep- from you know go from stretching out his hand to like pointing his fingers, like, yeah, when they, your people, when they sinned against you, not me, when they sin against you. And you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies who would take them. "...captive to their own lands, far away or near, and if they have a change of heart, in the land where they are held captive, and repent and plead with you, in the land of their captors, and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly, and if they turn back to you with all their heart, and so in the land of their enemies who took them captive. Then, from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea, and uphold their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you, and cause to captives to show them mercy, for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron-smelting furnace. Remember that this is supposed to be a temple dedication prayer. Where is he going with that? You know, just think back about like, what, 30 some years uh, when we, you know, first uh, finished building the sanctuary. I believe that Ken Carlson was a senior pastor back then. So imagine that we had a church dedication, right? Uh, I'm sure they're going to be like worshiping Manuel and Jordan, leading us sing. We're going to have feasting, dancing. We're just so festive. In the middle of this, Ken would just start praying. Oh, thank you, Lord, for giving us this wonderful church. But when they, these guys, sinned against you and you're angry and you burn the place down to ashes, you'd be thinking, where is he going with that? That's exactly what's happening. But, if you and I were among the exilic in Babylon, we were sitting by the rivers, and, uh, and Jordan was leading us sing the, the Boney M song, by the rivers of Babylon, and he sounds much better than this, right? There we sat down. And then Manuel was trying to get like, okay, sing, do this in spirit now. And then some guy came over and said, hey, whoa, 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 wait. Stop the music. Stop the music. Hey, uh, there's this, this book called uh, Book of Kings uh, delivered from uh, our homeland, our destroyed homeland. And, and some dude was saying that, gee, that's a pretty big book. Maybe we should divide that into First Kings and Second Kings. So anyway... So just shut up, quiet, quiet, quiet. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna read this. Okay, I'm gonna read this. When you get to this part of the prayer, how would we feel? I feel that's written for us. That was written for me. You see, the book of Daniel tells the Jews that God has decreed 70 times 7 years of suffering, of exile, to atone for their transgressions. Why 70 times 7 years? Because 7 times 7 is 49 years, right? For every 49 years, we have the Jubilee. Jubilee is a year that when everything was liberated. And And 70 times 7 is basically the Jubilee of all Jubilees. In the days of Jesus that 70 times 7 years was coming to an end. And that's why the Jews were really seriously keeping a lookout for the Messiah to come and rescue them from the hands of the Romans. Now, to the Jews, the kingdom of God is not a spiritual realm where you will go after you die. Rather, it is a geo political nation on earth. And how do you bring forth the kingdom of God? You do it militarily, politically, and economically. You get money, you gather people, you buy weapons, you find a leader, and you fight to the last man standing to drive out the Romans, to drive out the Gentiles. That's how you bring forth the kingdom of God. They were looking for a Dwayne Johnson, or a John Wayne for Messiah. The Greek word for Messiah is Christos. The English word for Christos is Christ. When Jesus came, no one recognized he's the Christ because he was so far removed from the imagination of what most people expected in those days. His disciples included. And the evangelists who wrote the four Gospels were not shy to point that out. I'll start with uh, Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was one of the 12 disciples. Why did they call him the Zealot? Zealot was a radical religious group. They believed paying taxes to the Romans' government was succumbing to a form of slavery. And the Gentiles should be driven out in violent ways. Now, incidentally, that's the context of what Jesus and Paul, the other Paul, talk about paying taxes. Romans 13 is not instructing us to be good citizens. I've heard many preachers who preach this before, like 20, 30 years ago, like you know, way before our nation is so divisive. So talking about what's a good citizen? Good citizen at that time basically means you, drive, you don't speed. You drive 55 miles per hour. That was a teaching that you know, we were given. But I'm saying, no, that is actually the most common misunderstanding of that passage. That passage is not telling us to be good citizens. Jesus and Paul were trying to tell the audience that that is not how we bring forth the kingdom of God. Why? Because not paying taxes would be the first step before a violent revolution, which actually happened in 70 A.D., and that led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That's why when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered correctly, you are the Christ. And Jesus started to explain that the Son of Man will die and be raised on the third day. And Peter rebuilt him. Why, he, why, would Jesus, uh, why would Peter rebuke him? Because this is not the right pep talk for Dwayne Johnson or John Wayne. Then there were uh, James and John. When Jesus and his disciples were rejected by the Samaritans, the two brothers asked if Jesus would like them to call down fire from heavens to burn them to ashes. It was like they are working for Al Capone. Even the mother went to Jesus at one point and asked for her two sons to sit at either side of uh, Jesus in his kingdom. Now, knowing what we know now, it was almost like an insider's joke, right? The evangelists explained to us that when Jesus was nailed on the cross, that was actually the time when he was enthroned. His kingdom came at that time. And who was on either side of Jesus? Two criminals nailed on the cross. So when the mother of James and John went to Jesus, said, make, our, make my two sons sit on the side of you when your kingdom come. What was Jesus' reply? Jesus was saying, um, uh, you, you, you don't know what you're asking. You know, till this day, I, I, when I get to that passage, I couldn't help smiling or chuckling. I was thinking, oh, woman, you have no idea what you're asking. But... I think the most dramatic moment came when they were in Jerusalem in the last days when one of the disciples caught a glimpse of the temple and was intrigued by its look. Wow, what a, what a magnificent temple, exclaimed the disciple. And Jesus went along and said, yeah, it's wonderful. Oh, and uh, yeah, not one stone will lay on another all will be torn down. What did the Bible say? It says the disciples went to Jesus privately. I think what they said was very revealing. You see, if, you, if somebody come up to me and tell me, Hey, Paul, uh, not one break of this church will lay on another, all be torn down. I would say, what are you talking about? You know, and th- that's not the question they had. They went to Jesus and they didn't ask, What's going on? I'm convinced that they're not asking a a theological question. They're not talking about eschatology. They ask like, tell us when is this going to happen? In their mind, they were the one who's going to be doing that. They were thinking that that's how the revolution is going to be. And time after time, Jesus was trying to explain to them, no, we are not going to choose the way of the sword. We are not choosing the way of power. We are choosing the way of the cross. And the culmination of Jesus' choice of the cross was displayed in the garden of Gethsemane. When Judas, the betrayer, led the arresting party to Gethsemane, Peter pulled out the sword and started fighting. This is it. This is the time we rumble. But Jesus said, Put away your sword. Wouldn't it be easy for me to ask my father to give me more than 12 legions of angels? One legion of Roman soldiers is about 6,000 people. 12 legions is a big old army that could run every single Roman out of Jerusalem and claim kingship right away. But Jesus chose the way of the cross instead. Sadly, I often see Christians of today kept asking for the 12 legions of angels. What is the significance to us on our word today. I would like to read selected quotes from the book titled The Day the Revolution Began by Antie Wright. One of the dangers of saying too easily that the Messiah died for our sins is to imagine that thereafter there would be no more dying to do, no more suffering to undergo. He went on to say that the apostle Paul explained that the revolution is implemented into operation by the suffering of Jesus' people. That's us. But, and I quote, it was hard for Paul's audience to understand this. They lived as we do in a competitive society where everyone was eager to look good, to be successful, to impress the neighbors, The beaten, bedraggled figure of Paul was hardly that of a leader one might to be proud of. Yet Paul rubs the noses in the point that this is the Messiah pattern, the cross pattern. This is how the victory was won. Jesus himself went to the place of shame and degradation. This is how the revolution was launched. This is how it makes its way in the world. Anti Wright went on to say, I suspect that this message about the necessity of suffering has not been fully understood in today's church, especially in the comfortable Western churches to which I and many of my readers belong. And he concluded by saying this, This is how it works. The Messiah suffered and won the victory over the powers of evil. The church The Messiah's people must suffer in the present because they share the Messiah's life. his raised from the dead life. And this is the way to implement the Messiah's victory. This is part of what it meant to share in His glory. His splendid rule over the world, which at present is exercised through the spirit-led work and suffering of His people. What does the way of the cross look like in our time? One of the examples anti right references is the forgiveness given to the killer in the Charleston shooting. This Englishman cited an American reference. During the trial of Dylan Roof, the shooter who killed nine people, including the senior pastor in Emmanuel Church, the judge allowed the family members of the victims to approach the defendant to say whatever was on their minds. One by one, they went up to the murderer who took the lives of their loved ones. Every fiber in my body hurts, and I'll never be the same, said Felicia Sanders, the mother of Taiwanza, who was killed that evening. One would assume that sorrow and rage would engulf this broken community, and rightly so. Yet every single person offered forgiveness. That was the way of the cross. That day, they changed the world a bit. And they changed me a bit. It is easy to talk about the way of the cross when we are the strongest country in the world. It is easy to say, I build my identity on Christ and Christ alone when we live in the richest country in the world. It is easy to talk about sacrifice when I know exactly where my next meal is coming from, and my biggest concern is about where to take vacations after my retirement. But when your hands and feet are nailed to the cross, when you are stripped away from all power and rights and privilege, what does the way of the cross look like? I have given some thoughts to this question recently, and I'm not sure I really know the answer because we don't talk enough of this. I know what the way of the sword look like, but what does the way of the cross look like? It is not something you build into the system that all it requires from you is just to live your regular life from day to day. It is not a piece of legislation that what it entails is simply to obey the law. It is not a public policy that sets everybody in the right place so we may have justice, freedom, and equality. Therefore, the way of the cross cannot be the choice of a public office candidate and to think that this person will bring righteousness because we do not need another Messiah. I think the way of the cross... It is a mindset. It is a conviction. It is a choice we make every day. It is the response to a calling. It is the courage to turn away from the sword. It is the humility to accept what God lays before you. It is the realization that life is not about you. It is the wisdom to see that you are but a piece of the puzzle of the larger picture God is putting together. It is the pain that we endure. It is the humiliation that trample us. It is the tears that no one will wipe. It is also the suffering that becomes redemptive. It is the submission to walk another mile. It is the willingness to turn the other cheek. It is about knowing what it means to be last. It is also the longing for the glory in Jesus' world. It is the act of sacrifice and know that you may not see the result in this life. It is also the vision of the final victory of Christ Is sealed. It is the ultimate way of saying, Lord, it is about you, not about me. These days, I thought a lot about why. Why would any one of us choose the way of the cross? With all the things I've read, the lyrics of one song came to mind. And I don't think there are better reasons than what it says. Down the Via Dolorosa called the Way of Suffering. Like a lamb came the Messiah Christ the King. But he chose to walk that road out of his love for You and me.